So if you have your Bible, you can look at Psalm 104. Psalm 104. And we'll begin there. And I want you just to listen as we read. You know, we've been obviously talking about creation, and uh, tonight we're going to talk about another aspect of creation that points to God. So we've been reading passages that talk about um, God declaring His own glory through His creation. Um, but here's another passage that's a, really a creation passage. You know, sometimes we think that they're only in the, the only creation passage we have is Genesis 1 and 2. But that's not true. There's, they're scattered throughout the Bible. So here's another one. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chamber, chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers of flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should not be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to a place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not again cover the earth. You made springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon. To mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the beasts out of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their tents. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. We'll just stop right there. So the one thing that's amazing about Psalm 104 is not only does it speak about God as, as creator, but it also speaks about how God has ordered things, that he's set things in a particular order, that he's done things a certain way. So it's not just as if he created and just sort of, you know, what happened, happened. I mean, he has purpose in every single thing. You can even see how he, he speaks about different times of the day when the beasts are active as opposed to when men are active and just little things that you wouldn't normally think of. Even, um, you know, the earlier in the psalm in, in verse 6 where he says he, he covered the earth uh, with water before there was land, and then the land come up out of the water. That sounds just like what we have in, in Genesis 1. So it's just all this order that God has done, all the ways that God has done it, that he set boundaries that the waters might not pass, all those things, that there's order and there's design in God's creation. That's what we're really going to talk about. Remember, we're still at the beginning of just sort of 
arguing for God's existence, and we really haven't gotten past that basic, um, that basic goal, which is just to argue uh, for God's existence or to ask the question, is it reasonable to believe that there's a God? So at this point, if you haven't been here yet, uh, at this point, I want you to know that we're not making any arguments for um, the reliability of the Bible at this point. We're, I'm taking those things for granted at this point. Um, we're not making any arguments for the truth claims of Christianity at this point. We're just dealing with that, that one question. Is it, is it reasonable to believe in God? And so we started it with what I believe for me. And it may not be for you. There are lots of arguments. We're going to go over more of them in the weeks ahead. But uh, for me, I think it's the strongest argument for the existence of God as we walk through the cosmological argument for the existence of God where we just uh, basically, you know, you come to the conclusion that if the universe began, and it did, then there had to have been a cause behind that beginning. And so, um, you know, if the universe had a beginning, there was a cause, and we believe that cause is God. And, uh, and so we know definitively that the universe had a beginning. That's no longer argued. Like, that's, that's, a, that's a fact. We know that there was a beginning, that it, that it started a, a single point with this explosive creative event, and we've all heard the name that the scientists have given that. You probably learned it in school. What's the name of that event? Big Bang. Big bang. Yeah, the Big, the big Bang. Uh, so, so we know that the universe had a beginning, and that means the universe had a cause, and, and we know that the cause of our universe has certain qualities. And uh, <laughs> it's coming on up. Uh, so a couple of the qualities. I just want to restate these. We ended on these last time, but... But we know that the cause of the universe, and we see all this, by the way, in Genesis 1-1, which we took apart last time, but uh, the cause of the universe existed before space and time because space and time didn't exist until it was created at the the Big Bang. And so the the cause must have been there and existed before space and time. The cause of the universe must possess the power of being in himself, otherwise he can't bring anything else into being. So he has the ability just to cause things uh, to exist. We know that the Bible speaks of that, doesn't it? That in Jesus, in Christ, all things were created by him and through him and for him. And the Bible says that in him, all things consist or are held together, that he literally has the power of being in himself. He holds us all together. We know that the cause of the universe must be unfathomably powerful in order to do what he did. And so when we think of all those things, and there's more, these are just, I'm just trying to hit quick bullet points, but think of if, if we get to a point where we know the universe began, then we say that the cause of the universe must have existed before space and time, um, must possess the power of being, must be unfathomably powerful. We could go on and say he's not limited by space and time, which is, means he can be omnipotent, he can be omnipresent, he can be all of these things. I mean, it just sounds like science leads us to God. You don't even need the Bible to get you there. The science will take you there if you'll follow it. Uh, but, and I, I think that's the most convincing argument just for the existence of God, just the base existence of God. But it, it may not convince you. And the good news is that there are lots of other arguments. Uh, we're going to go over all of them, not quite with the depth. We don't need to go to the depth that we did with the cosmological argument. I'm sure some of you are probably breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, that we can, we can kind of live on the surface of these other ones. At least that's how I'm, I'm planning to do it. Uh, but tonight we're going to talk about the argument from design. 
And that, that's really closely related to the cosmological argument for God's existence, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, we're going to just be talking about what Psalm 104 tells us, that there's purpose, that there's a design, that there's something in the universe that points to a designer. And you've probably heard the old illustration that if you were walking down a beach and you came upon a watch and you picked up the watch and began to examine the watch, you would come to the conclusion that there was a watchmaker, right? The deeper that you look into the watch, they take off its back and you see the cogs and the wheels and all the different elements of the watch and how they're intricately put together. The, the further you look inside, the deeper you look, the more you become convinced. There was a, a designer and the designer had a purpose. And so the argument from design is just looking at the evidence in the universe, just like picking up that watch, looking at all the evidence and coming to the conclusion that based on the level of design and purpose that we see in the universe, there must be a designer. There must have been someone who had intent. And so we're going to start, I'm going to try to begin sort of at the highest level I can, and I'm really just going to touch on a couple of things, because there's literally millions, probably billions of things that we could talk about uh, when we talk about design, but I'm just going to talk about a couple of things, and we'll start at the top, and we'll start with the big picture of design, and this is a just like it's such a big picture that I'm hesitant to try to do it in a couple uh, short bullet points. But, uh, but basically, it goes like this, that the, that the universe itself is designed to support human life. Like, not, not that, you know, sometimes we think of design and we just think about, like, you know, uh, the way that we see things around us in our own setting. We see lots of evidence for design in our own setting. But the bigger picture is that the entire universe, the vastness of it, which is almost incomprehensible, uh, that all of that seems to exist for the purpose of supporting life here on this one little planet. It's not just that the planet is fine-tuned for life, but the entire universe is fine-tuned for life on this one planet. That's a big Big statement, a big thing to say that as we see more and more discoveries, more and more science, uh, it, it teaches us that life on earth would be impossible without all of what we see in the universe. It's a pretty amazing thing. Um, how many of you have heard of Stephen Hawking? You know that guy? The uh, famous uh, physicist, famous atheist. Um, he wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, and he, as an atheist, even said, uh, that, that he could see that the universe seems like it's designed for us. He said, it would be difficult to explain. I think I have these quotes for you guys. Um, let me see if I do. Yeah, no, that's not it. Never mind. Sorry. The, uh, he says, it would be difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. I mean, imagine an atheist, a famous atheist scientist, looking at the universe and saying, now he would come to the conclusion that I don't accept that, but he's saying it would be difficult to look out there and see the design of the universe and come to any other conclusion except that it was designed, all of it was designed for us. Uh, another American physicist named Freeman Dyson said, the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. Like the whole universe. 
You know, not just where we're at on this little speck of dust, really, in the, in the whole universe, but, but that the whole universe, when we look at it, he's saying it feels like it must have known that we were coming. And, and so as scientists observed more and more in the 20th century, as they were able to see more and more and, and study the, uh, the universe and all that's out there, uh, it, the, they came to the conclusion that it does seem like it's all there for us. And they would call that, and, and there's a, a more scientific name for this, but the easier name that probably makes more sense to most of us is the Goldilocks effect or the Goldilocks principle. Do you, you, know, you all know the story of Goldilocks? Just right. <laughs> yeah, it's just right. Exactly. So it's, it's, not, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's not too full of radiation. There's just enough radiation. There's all these things, and they would say it's just right. It's like it's been tuned, everything in the universe, so that we on our planet can live. Everything's just right. So we have this, this Goldilocks effect. And, and you know, the, the universe, interesting thing about that is that the, uh, the universe really is governed by laws or rules, and which the Bible also speaks about, um, about God setting, setting those things for us. But, you know, we have the, the universe being governed by rules or laws, and, and these laws don't change. They don't change based on your location. They don't change based on time or any of those things. These, these are constants throughout the entire uh, universe. And so many of these laws, I don't want to get too deep into these because I'm not a scientist and I'll just say something that's not true, I'm sure. Um, but I think I can understand this, that one of the big ones that they will point to when they say the design of the universe or the, uh, the, this Goldilocks effect, that things are just right, uh, scientists will look at gravity, the force of gravity, for instance. This is a really important one. The gravity, we all know what gravity is. It's the force that attracts things that have mass to one another. I don't know. I don't know what the right definition of it is. I know I feel it every day. I know I feel it more the lower I get. How many of you, like, the last night I was doing something and Denise said, what's wrong with you? I said, it's just hard to get up off the floor again. And I was like, uh, but the, um, the older I get and the heavier I get, the more I feel gravity. We all, but we all, we all do feel it. Uh, we all feel it every day in that force, and it's a constant force. It's a, it's a constant force. It doesn't change no matter where you are. The laws of gravity or the law of gravity remains uh, constant. And so it's the same now, and that gravity is the same now as it was at the moment of creation. And that's, that's really important because uh, what scientists have figured out, I'm going to try to illustrate this the best I can, is that if there was any variance in the law of gravity, like one way or the other, less gravity or more gravity, they say if there's any variance in gravity at the moment of creation, at, that, at a second after the Big Bang, when it all started, if there was any variance more or, or any variance as big as one part in 10 to the 40th power, that's a, that's a big number. I, I think I, I'm going to show it to you here. Uh, so, but it, but if, if that had happened, that just that sliver of variance had happened, if it wasn't tuned exactly right, that if there wasn't enough uh, gravity, the universe would have just sort of exploded outward and expanded too quickly and nothing would have really happened. Maybe some stars form along the way, but they quickly burn out and it's just this vast nothing. And if, there was, if, if the force of gravity was different in the other direction, there would have been the explosion of creation and it would all just collapse right back in onto itself. So we needed an exact, like perfect, perfectly tuned 
uh, amount of gravity for the universe and for life to even exist. Life couldn't exist without it. So that number, 10, um, 10 to the 40th power, it's a big number, and I, I think probably too big for us to even grasp, but we'll have fun trying to grasp it. Let's look at some other big numbers, like the odds of you being struck by lightning. Who knows those odds? I, I was shocked to find that it's not that big of a number. One in about 15,000. How many of you know somebody who's been struck by lightning? I do. You don't know any? You guys? Man, y'all got to get out more. One in 15,000. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not a huge number, but, the, uh, but it, it's big nonetheless. Uh, how about the odds of dying by lightning strike? Here's some good news. Like, you can get struck by lightning. One in 15,000 people will get struck by lightning. How about dying by lightning strike? Huh? Who's... So, one in, in 247,000. So that's not so, yeah, it's not so discouraging. Yeah, right, right, right. I mean, you got to get struck first, yeah. The, uh... All right. Who said something about being eaten by a shark? Bitten probably is about the same. Eaten by a shark. <laughs> I mean, lots of people get bit by sharks. How many people get killed by a shark? I'd like there you to die in a shark attack. Anybody know? So, 3.7 million. Still isn't that big of a number when you think about the population of the world. It's like... Man, odds are aren't great, Nick, that you're not going to die by a shark. Yeah, stay out of the water, you're good. All right, how about this one? Odds of being struck by lightning twice. Odds of being struck by lightning twice. Uh, one in nine million. I'm not sure the screen's broken, so y'all, if, I, if you're seeing something weird, tell me. The uh, odds of dying in a plane crash. Those of you who fly a lot, Nick, you'll be, you'll be uh, glad to know. It's just one in 11 million. Um, all right. Now, those are big numbers. I'm just trying to illustrate things that we can think of, practical things that we can think of, and we think of the odds of them happening. And when we think of something like that, we think those are, those are huge odds. Like it's it's never going to happen to me. I don't have to be concerned because the odds are so enormous. But uh, when we talk about that number, 10 to the 40th power, and talk about the variance in gravity, what we're talking about, and, and this was too big to even come up in a reasonable size, I think. But there you go. It's one in that number. I don't even know what that number is. They might know what that number is. What comes after a trillion? What comes after a trillion? What is it? Quadrillion? Quintillion? There you go. So you should be able to, yeah, you should be able to tell us. What is it? Yeah, I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot. So, yeah. So the point is that even something like as simple that we take for granted as, as gravity, you know, if it had varied just a, a, just a microscopic, that's not even appropriate to say because it's so small. That it's just such a, we can't even grasp how small that variance would have to be. But if there was basically any variance at all, the universe couldn't exist, life couldn't exist, none of us would be here. 
So it had to be ultra fine-tuned. I mean, that's pretty amazing in of itself. And just think about it. That had to happen at the moment of creation. That had to all be right. Didn't have, there was no time for it to work itself out, evolve, chance, which isn't anything, by the way. But all that stuff that, that people will say, well, given time, enough time, given infinite time and chance, anything can happen, except not. That's a stupid argument. Chance doesn't do anything. It's not anything. It's nothing. And we know already that out of nothing, nothing comes. It can't happen. So just think about that, that even at the very beginning, uh, that, that things were so fine-tuned that, that life could happen. Then we talk about the, the sun, the, the moon, and the stars uh, briefly. A couple things. When I say sun and stars, by the way, I, I know I'm being redundant. I know the sun is a, is a star. And, uh, you know, I, I get that. But, but since it's the star that we orbit, it's special to us. And so we'll call it, we'll, we'll differentiate it from all the other stars. But the sun, uh, the moon, and the stars. And so, like, the sun, we think about the sun, for instance, it is a star, which means that it had a beginning, it will live for a time, and it will die. I mean, that's what stars do. They, they come into existence, and then they live for a time, they have a life cycle, and, uh, and at certain times in the life cycle of a star, it will be brighter, it will burn hotter, it will burn cooler, all those things will happen. And our sun, uh, earlier in our sun's life, it was actually too dim uh, to support life on, on the earth. It wasn't, wasn't stable enough, it was too dim, but eventually it, it reached a certain level of brightness and a certain stability. Turns out that our star that we orbit is one of the most stable stars in the entire universe. It's just sort of there doing its thing. Like, like It's not that it's not changing. It is, but it's very stable as stars go. And eventually it reached a place where it was stable enough, bright enough, hot enough, uh, just the right distance away, all those things in order to support life on earth. But eventually what will happen to the sun? Yeah, it's going to die like any other star. Eventually, that, that's going to happen. It'll transition into a new part of its life. It, it, before it dies, it'll become much larger than it is now. It'll swallow up the first two planets ahead of us and possibly even reach us. Either way, the heat from the sun eventually will vaporize us, the, the, the planet Earth, the, the planets that remain, all those things. It'll become too hot, too bright to sustain life. But right now, guess what? It's just right. Right? Like Goldilocks is just, just right. Even the moon. The moon is important. You know, that big hunk of cheese. Uh, Owen told us not too long ago he wanted to go to the moon because he likes cheese. That's what he said. <laughs> I don't know where he even picked that up at. But the, uh, um, but the moon plays an important role in supporting life on earth and the way the moon interacts with the earth and, and the way that the moon affects tides and slows the rotation of the earth. Without the moon, our earth would start spinning really fast. Days would get really short, a couple hours long. Um, but the moon works to slow us down, slow the rate of spin down, give us that ideal 24-hour day that, that helps us to maintain life. It does all those things. So we have the moon. Uh, we think of the stars. The stars, uh, when you look outside at night, you see all those stars up in the sky. All of them are important for supporting our life. They're not just sort of up there separate from us. They all have to do with us. The entire universe, all of it is tuned for us. The stars are what produce the elements 
in the universe that are required to sustain life. The stars are the factories that produce all of those elements. And unless they were tuned just right, we wouldn't have the elements that we need to support life. We wouldn't be able to live without the stars. Every time a a star explodes at the end of its life, these supernovas, they explode, they send stardust, magical stardust. It might as well be magical. You know, all it send it out through the universe, and eventually it, it ends up in different places like Earth, where we need those elements to sustain life. Without the stars and the formation of stars, we couldn't live. And, and, and so this, this is a long process. So when the stars were first born, they were in the process of, of making those elements and then dying off and spreading those elements, and they're needed to, to reach a certain level, those elements, for life to be able to exist. It had to get to a place where it was just right. And then eventually what will happen as the universe cools and expands, what will happen to those stars and to those factories, element factories? They'll cool off, they'll die off, they'll stop being born, and the elements will stop being produced, and life can no longer be sustained in the universe. So all, But, but right now, everything's perfect. Like Everything's tuned up just right, and we just happen to be living... In that place. Now, here's my awful illustration. I draw pictures in my journal uh, that help me understand things because I sometimes I, I just learn easier uh, with a with a picture. So this is not scientific. Don't hold me to it. This is my conceptual understanding of all of this. So I have three uh, three things out here. Well, I have a timeline at the bottom, and look at this. If you can see it, if you're close enough. It says bang. Look, I even have little, little marks like bang. What do you think, Nick? It's top notch right here, man. <laughs> then I have a timeline. And then right here, I have 13.8. Who knows what that number is? What's that? 13.8 billion years. The age, the agreed upon age of the universe. So, the, um, so then we have the stars, the sun, and, and the earth and the moon. So I'll try to, try to do this in order. So imagine the stars. Remember, we said that they needed to grow, live, die, shower the universe with all these elements, and that takes time. So they're in this cycle of just sort of growing, growing. All these elements are being produced, and then what will happen to them? Eventually, we'll hit a tipping point, and they'll start dying off and stop producing those elements. So the stars. Then we have the sun, which is... Again, this is not scientific. I know this, the sun is a star and it'll do the same basic thing. But in order to illustrate why it matters for us, think of the sun as doing this, just sort of growing to its potential. And then eventually it's going to become too, before it dies, it's going to become too big, too hot for us. We're not going to be able to live. And then we have the earth being orbited by the moon. And I'm going to use a straight line to draw that. Now get out of the way so y'all can see it too. So imagine that for a lot of its life, Earth was uninhabitable, just couldn't sustain life. And eventually it will become uninhabitable again. But right now at this time period, you know, we could just sort of draw a dotted line up and we get the stars having produced the exact perfect amount of elements we need. The sun being the exact perfect uh, size and strength. The earth rotating at the exact speed. The moon being in perfect rotation. They all meet at the same spot. 
which is sort of the Goldilocks zone where everything is just right. Like it's all been tuned, really finely tuned for us to appear on the scene right here in this one spot. It's pretty amazing to think about it. The, uh, real, real quick, uh, it's weird not having a clock. Um, the, the location of the earth in the universe is also important, uh, which I don't have time to illustrate that. I'm not going to try to draw the whole universe. Um, but it's, the location of the, the earth is important because it's situated in the only place in the universe where it could thrive. Like, not just in our solar system, not just the distance from the sun, like in the whole universe. The earth is in this one little dark spot, hidden from all the dangerous radiation that would be emanating out from the center of our galaxy and all those other things. It's sort of protected and hidden in this band of our galaxy, in this dark spot, which, by the way, because we live in such a dark area, the darkest spot in, the, in our galaxy, in the darkest area of our of the universe, like all that, we live in this dark spot. It enables us to do what? You, do you know? Yeah, to see. To see out. If we lived in other places in the universe, you'd look up and you just wouldn't see much out there. You'd be blinded by the other lights of the universe. But we happen to live in this little dark, protected spot. Um, here's some uh, other good quotes. Uh, this is a good quote. It's long, but it's good. Um, Hugh Ross, who's an astrophysicist, he's a Christian. He's done a lot of great uh, work. He said, if location, location, location applies to the cosmic scene, Earth's location would be considered way beyond prime. No amount of money could buy it. Earth appears to reside in the only neighborhood in the universe where humans can exist and thrive. Something or someone from beyond the physics and dimensions of the universe who is not subject to them placed life and humanity in the only location in the universe at the only time in cosmic history where and when such creatures could survive and thrive. I mean, all of these things happening accidentally would be ridiculous. I mean, it just there, there's not enough um, numbers to, to figure out the probability of all that happening. I mean, think about the amount of fine-tuning that's gone into us just being able to exist. Like, just the possibility that we can that we can live, that there can be life on any planet. Just think about the, that, that we had to be on a planet that's orbiting a stable star, like that, that won't kill us tomorrow. You know, like we're, on the, we're orbiting a stable star. We're orbited by a, a, a moon that helps control our spin rate and our, the tides on our planet, all those things. Um, our star is at the right temperature. It's at the right brightness. Um, we have the, the, the location uh, in the universe. Again, we're protected from all these things. There's just all these layers upon layers. And, and this is not even, we haven't, this, when I say we haven't scratched the surface, I mean we haven't even, even approached the surface yet. So I'm just trying to give you some big examples of, uh, of the design that, that we live under. The biggest uh, or the most compelling argument for uh, design is life itself. And to think about life, that, that every life is, is incredibly complex. Like even the simplest life. Like if you go down to the single cell, the simplest life. You know, when Darwin published his uh, Origin of Species, and he had this idea that, you know, we all evolved out of this very simple, um, you know, this, this simple primordial soup, 
you know, whatever it is. And he had in his idea that it was just this very simple thing and that as it grew and, and other elements were combined, that it became more complex. But he thought that the beginning, the single cell, was just very simple. And we found out that that's not true. It's like the watch, right? You take the back off, you start looking around, you start discovering there's way more to this than I thought there was. And uh, I, I don't know who it was. I saw it in a, a video recently where a man asked a, a scientist, said, if Darwin thought that the cell was as complex as a Buick, what do we now think about the single cell and its complexity? And he said, oh, now it's a galaxy. I mean, think about that. The difference between thinking it's as simple as a Buick and now understanding that it's so complex we can't even grasp it. Just a single, a single cell. Uh, and so, so scientists have uncovered and found that every cell in our bodies is basically an incredible work of engineering. That they're like these, these little uh, factories where they do things. They have uh, signals being sent within them, telling them to do things at certain times and certain circumstances. Uh, DNA research has found that every strand of DNA uh, in our bodies is carrying around mind-boggling amounts of information, math information, things that look like computer code. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is a, a famous scientist, and also don't confuse him with Stephen, uh, not, the same, not the same guy. This is uh, Dawkins, not Hawkins. Um, but he, he's one of what they would call the new atheists. You know what the new atheists are? The, the, the old atheists are just, they just don't believe in God and they're content to let you believe in whatever you want. The new atheists don't believe in God and they want to evangelize you. And so the, um, so he's one of those types who's, who's sort of militantly opposed to religion. But he says this. He says, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of molecular uh, biology journals might be interchanged with those of computer engineering journals. Like it's so complex that it's, it almost looks identical to what we see in computers, the code that's written into computers. Bill Gates, who knew a thing or two, I guess, about uh, computers, he said human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than anything we've ever created. So we just look at the simplest parts of life, and we find that there's evidence there of, of design, of a creator, that it, there's no way that it could just happen. It had to have been put together in certain ways and certain designs. So everything we discover about the universe and the laws uh, of the universe that govern space and time, they help us to understand that, that, that our universe is highly tuned, that it is uh, designed to support life in a very specific time and a place, and that it's not just any life that it's designed to support, but life here on earth. That this specifically, this earth, this planet, the life that's here, and ultimately us, that the entire universe is there to support, is designed to support the life that exists here on earth. Next time you look up at the stars, that give you a little different perspective, won't it? To think that that's all there. And we're just glimpsing a tiny little bit of it, but it's all there for us. And, and some atheists and, and others have argued that it seems wasteful that the idea that God would create that much just for this little tiny planet to have our little tiny lives on it, that it seems like God could have done it a different way. Well, I guess he could have done it a different way, but he didn't do it a different way. 
And it doesn't seem wasteful at all to me. It's, it just makes, uh, it makes me feel like creation's all the more important. That the vastness of the universe is all pointing back at this one little planet and us living on it makes me think that God really does care. Not that, not that he's wasting time or wasting energy. So design. Again, we could talk of a million different, a million different things about design um, that we're not going to get to. I, I have some questions I wrote down. Uh, I'm not going to get into them because we only have like four minutes, and three minutes. Clock just went. Uh, so do you have any questions? Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. There's supposed to be a really neat uh, thing with Venus and the moon tonight, by the way, like 1040 something. Um, you touched on this, but I think it's, it's worth repeating and pointing out. You know, when we read Psalm 104, we read about the order of creation and just creation itself. And all of this stuff that the psalmist is outlining. It should drive us to our knees and worship of a God that can do that, mm-hmm. or that has done that. And, and you touched on this a, a moment ago. You know, we live in a dark part of the universe, mm-hmm. and which means that that we, um, we we are in a just as a unique spot to be able to even observe the universe. If we yeah. were for some reason on Mars or, or another planet, even with our, in our own solar system, we could not observe what we can observe mm-hmm. from Earth. It's really fascinating. And, and it's, it should drive you to worship. Yeah. And that not only did God create all of this um, for his glory, but he put us in a position to acknowledge it and see it yeah. so that we could honor right. him and worship him. Yeah. Which he encourages us to do that very thing in the Bible. Lots of times to look out at creation and see see his presence in the creation. We're supposed to be able to do that. And he's situated us in a place where we can literally do it. We can look out and see it. EJ? Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about like, uh, is it is it ast- astrology? Is that what... Yeah, astronomy is the good one, right? All right. No, I don't think there's any meaning in this. No. Like not any, not any like hidden spiritual meaning, or, or I don't think because you were born in a certain month that you're going to act in a certain way. I don't think there's anything. Well, you think what's cool about it is that you can, they can tell you when something's going to come back again. When oh, sure. You know, it's, there's a timing to it. It's not something yeah. that's just random. No, I mean, they're great for measuring and for tracking and seasons and time and history. But as far as like what you read in the, you know, page 28 of the Washington Post, like, nah, that doesn't, there's nothing to that. Uh, one more question we got. Time for one more. Anybody? Or comment? Right. Everything is. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know that um, when I brought up gravity and that that number and the variance in gravity, it's not just gravity. There's so many things that that even have greater numbers than that attached to them. As far as if they weren't just right, the whole universe would would not be able to to sustain life. 
and then he did it all. Yeah, everything. Everything is literally everything is just perfect. In any variance, we would stop existing. We just couldn't exist. Just amazing, amazing man. Anything else? Well, we don't have time. So, <laughs> seven, look, I want to call. Here, look, here's a. I have three questions. Come back next time. I have three that I wrote down. Nick's probably going to ask some of these. Um, uh, do you believe the Earth is young or old? Uh, do you believe creation happened in six literal days? And here's the one everybody wants to know: What about dinosaurs? So, so next time, next time we'll pick up there, and uh, and we're we're going to start working our way progressively toward Christianity. So you understand, we're not just going to stay in this sort of. Uh, weird space of, of science and philosophy. We're going to start working our way towards the truth claims of Christianity, uh, but we're, we're going to, at it systematically. So next week, we'll pick up with those questions. Any other questions that you have? And then we'll start dealing with some of the philosophical arguments for the existence of God, uh, which I think are very strong.